Heavenly Father, we thank you for rain in our city. Thank you, Father, that we could all be here despite it. And Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the clarity that Paul wrote with as he answered these important questions. Thank you for preserving it in your word. Thank you, Father, for delivering it to us. And thank you, Father, for the gift of the Holy Spirit in each of us who explains it uh, in ways that no one else could. And we ask, Lord, that uh, tonight as we wrestle with it and we try to make the most sense we can of it, that you would uh, be guiding that learning process in each of us and speaking to us in a way that lets us understand how we use this, how we understand it is supposed to be useful in our own lives. Uh, Even as we have come to faith, Father, we're learning about things that are not faith, but still maybe it's something we can use, Father, to reach someone else. So help us with that. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've been in a conversation that Paul has started back in chapter 1 about how not to get saved. He's been addressing four major religious lies because in these four you can categorize everything that anyone's ever invented. All of these are for righteousness' sake, or at least they are in the minds of the individual. The individual thinks they're becoming righteous by giving their worship to something created. They think they're going to make it to heaven because they see in themselves inherent righteousness. Or they believe if they do certain rules or laws, they will become righteous. Those are the three that Paul has talked about so far. At the end of chapter 2, where we left off, we had gotten to the end of that third argument of nomianism. In that final part of that chapter, as Paul moves out of the third argument, he raises in that third argument the notion of circumcision, of Judaism. The Jewish people hold a very unique place in the world. They are the only nation of all humanity to have entered into a covenant relationship with the living God. No other people group on earth can make that claim. Other religions may claim to have a special relationship with a God or their God or the God, but only Judaism actually possesses that relationship, and they know it. So it's easy for a Jewish person to overplay that hand, to assume that their unique position in the world means that they are going to receive a uniquely good judgment from God. That, in other words, their Jewish identity is enough all by itself to get them into heaven. They all carry their Jewish card, so that's equivalent to the get into heaven card. So we see Paul at the end of chapter 2 moving into that discussion of circumcision because he's already transitioning, in a sense, out of this third topic, nomianism, and into his fourth one. Jews identify typically with the act of circumcision. That is the way by which someone identifies as Jewish, at least historically. Jewish men had to take on that sign in their body as God gave to Abraham when they turn eight days old. Their parents do that to them, of course. Women would share in that same identity through the headship of either their circumcised father or husband. And the Bible says that that circumcision was a sign of a covenant that existed between him and this group of people. But over the years, over the centuries, the Jewish people began to confuse the sign with the substance. This is an overemphasis of Jewish identity, and it becomes the fourth false view of how you obtain righteousness in this letter. And in some ways, it's the odd duck here, because these are all very broad, and you can see them at work in almost any culture. But Judaism is, by definition, unique to one culture. And it's unique because they have that unique relationship. Because they are who they are, they can misunderstand that their relationship with God is somehow greater than it really is, or that it offers things that it doesn't necessarily offer. There's no other group on the earth that has that opportunity in the same way. That's why it deserves its own category. So we're talking now about this view among many Jews historically that their Jewish identity alone assures them righteousness, that is, assures them entry into heaven. This is them acknowledging that despite their sin, the Lord will overlook that sin based on the covenant relationship he has with them. That God's favor for his people will make somehow an accommodation for them. And Jews who hold this view look in a corresponding way to Gentiles as being dogs, as being outside the plan of God, unable to be reached. There's a saying among Jews that God created Gentiles merely to fuel the fires of hell. That comes out of this very Judaic-centric view of self. We are the chosen people. By definition, you are not. Sorry. They would even teach that Abraham guards the gates to Hades even now, And that should a Jew find his or her way to the entrance of hell for some reason, Father Abraham would turn that one around and send them back to heaven. So they have this very strong sense of of expectation that because they're Jewish, that's all that matters. This is the lie that Jews tell themselves. 
and therefore it's unique to Judaism. Though it is unique to Judaism, it's not an issue that is major today because Judaism is not a major part of the church today, not as it was in the first day. But given their importance to God in general, to God's people, it's still an issue worth discussing. And, of course, in the early church, it was of special concern because the church still had a significant component of Jews, at least in the early part of that first century. And it was certainly true in the Roman church. So even as Paul is wrapping up his argument on nomianism in chapter 2, He's already lining up his argument against the fourth issue of Judaism. I'm calling it Judaism not to indict Judaism as a whole, but just to label it for convenience. We're talking about those who believe that because of their patronage, because of their father's identity and their identity, that's sufficient. Paul's first argument against this thinking actually begins to appear at the end of chapter 2 when he's dealing with the fallacy of trusting in your circumcision, which is a way of saying trusting in your Jewish identity. And as we studied last week, Paul connected the circumcision with the law. He says that Jews could not rely on the law for righteousness, he said, unless they do the law. And he says doing the law was so important and so central to your righteousness that if someone who wasn't circumcised did, in fact, do the law, they would be righteous even as a circumcised Jew who did not keep the law would not be. Now, obviously, we're not saying that doing law is a means of righteousness. That's not Paul's point either. What he's saying, though, is... In a technical way, if you could keep the law perfectly, you would be by definition righteous. Having the law and not doing it buys you nothing, circumcised or otherwise. So as Paul put it in Romans 2.28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. So he's calling into question the importance of circumcision in the flesh as it relates to heaven. He's saying circumcision was a sign of a covenant, but possessing the sign does not automatically convey the substance of the covenant to the individual. For example, water baptism is our sign for our covenant. The new covenant sign is water baptism. But going into the water does not automatically confer salvation to somebody in the new covenant. The way I've often said is you can't push on a rope. I can pull, I can go from belief into the water, but I can't reverse that process. I can't push on the rope. It doesn't make any sense. If your heart is not in agreement with the covenant, then taking the sign is meaningless, whether it's water baptism or physical circumcision. And that was Paul's point in Romans 2.28. A Jew who trusts in the law, that is, in merely possessing the law, and trusts in their identity as being Jew, is someone who's missing the big picture. The identity God cares about is your spiritual identity, not your physical identity, whether it be by who your father was or whether or not you cut off a part of your body. What matters is the spiritual state you have before God. It's the keeping of the law, in other words, that matters, not the possessing of it. It's the having of a heart that belongs to the family of God, not a body that belongs to the nation of Israel. Those are the things that matter. And God gave those other things for reasons beyond the idea of salvation. They were there for bigger reasons, for other issues. The question on an individual basis, though, is the heart. Where's the heart? And now with that, Paul's going to move into the treatment against the fourth spiritual lie, against Judaism. And that goes into chapter 3. So what he set up for us in chapter 2 is that merely being Jewish and having the law is not all that it was cracked up to be. It doesn't get you what you think it's going to get you. And in chapter 3 now, he narrows down into this discussion of what it means to be Jew. And he starts in chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. I'm pausing there. This is a chapter that won't give us a chance to read a lot at a time. Everything is very broken out. Paul begins addressing this lie by asking and answering five questions. And the first question comes at the beginning. So we're going to break each out. We're going to look at all five individually. This is a very typical Pauline technique. It's never any easier to see than here. Romans is really the best letter to see it. But he does this in other letters too. He'll ask a question that he believes his audience will be asking him, but because they're not in the same place, because he's writing to them, he can't get the dialogue going, so he assumes the dialogue. Things like, but you will say to me. And that's his technique of raising the questions he thinks he needs to address. And as he addresses them one at a time, he refutes the lie. He begins with a question that I assume most Jews, in fact many Christians, would probably ask once they learn that God treats all men the same at the judgment, Jew or Gentile. doesn't matter whether you've been circumcised, doesn't matter whether your father was Abraham or not, I treat you all the same at the judgment. And that would raise the obvious question, then what benefit was it to be Jew? 
Why did you even go to the effort to create a whole group of people, call them Jew, give them circumcision, give them the law, give them all this other stuff, if at the end of the day, we judge them the same way we judge Gentiles? What's the benefit of being part of that covenant? And the answer Paul says is, well, it's great in every respect. That is to say, there are significant advantages to being Jewish. The first, and by far the greatest advantage, was you receive the oracles of God, which is a fancy way of saying the Word of God. You have the Word. Israel was the nation of people that God entrusted to receive the Word of God on behalf of all humanity. And they wrote it down. We have it in the Old Testament today. No other people on earth received this blessing. Gentiles did not have the Word of God. And therefore, most Gentiles throughout the history of the world have lived and died and never heard anything in God's Word, not a single syllable. In our modern times, it's less likely that that's the case because of the Internet and publishing and radio and so on. But there are still millions, if not billions, of people who have never read a single word in the Word of God. Many of them sit in church, by the way. (laughs) It's still the case that it is a Jewish thing to have a regular routine of reading the Torah, reading Tanakh, or reading some aspect of Scripture as a part of their regular daily life, if they're observant at all in their Judaism. That makes for a great advantage. You know, notice Paul begins there by saying, first of all, or it really should have been translated, of first importance. Having the Word of God was Israel's chief advantage. It was of first importance if your goal is to pursue righteousness. If your goal in life is to get to heaven, you cannot have a better advantage than having the Creator's own words given to you concerning that very topic. It's like getting the instruction manual to something that's very important. Of course, just possessing the Word of God is not a means to righteousness any more than possessing the law was in and of itself. I grew up in a home that had a Bible. I knew of at least one, and it was about this big and dusty, and it sat on the highest shelf, and I can't remember anyone ever touching it the whole 18 years I lived in that house. My mom gave it to me at some point in the past, so it's sitting on a high shelf somewhere in my house right now. (laughs) The point is, having the Word in that sense is not the point, right? But what Paul is illustrating is that the people of God had the distinct advantage of the instruction manual, as I'm calling it. And in that book, in the Word of God, they could have found everything they needed to find, know, and follow God, leading them to righteousness. So Paul could have gone on about that because he says, first of all, and he never gives a second or a third or a fourth, because his point is made just with one example. If you want to know why there was an advantage in being Jew, you don't have to go any further than saying, because they had the word of God, done. Reason enough to say it's an advantage. But that was not to say that God's purpose in creating the people of God was to give them a special advantage at the moment of judgment. There's no partiality with God. That leads to the second question, verse 3. Well, what then? If some did not believe... Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The question goes like this. If God singled out Israel for special revelation, that is, He gave them the Word, and yet not all of them demonstrated faith in that Word, self-evidently, not all Jews believed, not all Jews were saved, then what are we to conclude about God? Does the fact that some within Israel did not follow the Lord faithfully, does that suggest that God was not faithful to His covenant people? That, in other words, He didn't follow through on His promise to every living Jew, leaving some out in the cold? Is that a problem for us here now? And this is actually Paul raising the chief flaw in the lie of Jewish identity. The lie that says, because I'm Jewish, I'm going to heaven. The chief flaw in that is to assume that God deals with all Jews in exactly the same way. That to be a Jew puts you into this special group in which now God makes no more distinctions. Every Jew is equal to every other Jew. Done. That's a flaw. That's untrue. It's as if to say if God were to turn his back on any single Jew, that somehow that means he's been unfaithful to the whole group because he let one of them go. He didn't keep them all. So Paul asked that question for the reader. That is, would it make God unfaithful if there were unfaithful members of Israel? To prove the error in this logic, Paul quotes from a case study from the Old Testament. Remember, whenever you see a quote from an Old Testament source in the New Testament, the expectation of the author is that you see that quote and it triggers you to go back and take the whole context from where it comes and apply that whole context to what's being talked about, not just the one verse that's quoted. It's meant to be like a shortcut to a web page. You're supposed to click the link and go back and read it. And from there you get an understanding of why he was making that reference. So I'm doing the clicking for you. We're going back to one of the most famous case studies of Jews in the, in the Bible. 
It's a case study of a Jewish man who received great promises from God, and yet this man was unfaithful. And here's what this man said himself about his own situation. This man is King David. And in Psalm 51, verse 2, here's what David wrote. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. How is that applicable? Well, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is quoting David's confession of sin. And David declares that when the Lord judged his sin, the Lord was blameless. Now, you all remember the story of David's sin? This is in reference to the way the Lord judged David for taking Bathsheba as his wife and killing Bathsheba's husband in battle. And the Lord judged David for that adultery and for that murder. And he did it by taking the life of the child that came from that adulterous relationship. And then, as you probably know, David mourned over his child for a time. And then finally comes to the point where he acknowledges that that was a righteous judgment of God. That it was the right response on God's part. And here you see him testifying to that in Psalm 51. So how does this relate to what Paul's getting at? It answers the very question Paul just raised. The question is, is the Lord unfair when he holds an unfaithful Jew accountable? Should God overlook the sin of a Jew simply because they are a Jew? Because that's the assumption you're making when you hold to a Jewish identity form of righteousness. But if that's how it worked, then David, of all people in Israel, David would have been excused for his sin in this case, wouldn't he? I mean, if that was a general principle, God overlooks the sins of his own people just because they're Jewish then David would never have been able to say you were just in how you treated me and blameless in your judgments. In fact, we would have expected God to say, you know, David, you probably shouldn't have done that, but you're a Jew, so don't worry. But of course he doesn't do that. David himself said that the judgment was correct. So in other words, it puts to rest the concept that somehow God should be overlooking the sins of Israel, and he never has. That leads to the third question. Verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? This takes us one step further in the progression. This argument suggests, what Paul's raising now, suggests that when God's people are unrighteous and God judges them, then their sin is highlighting God's righteousness. We can understand this argument with a simple comparison. When you speed down the highway, you're breaking the law. Because you're speeding, you give opportunity for a policeman to chase you down and give you a ticket. So in a sense, you could say your sin gave the policeman an opportunity to show his righteous judgment. So based on that, when you go to the court, you tell the judge that the judge should dismiss your ticket because you're doing your civic duty. That is, you're highlighting the city's excellent judicial system. I mean, it's silly, right? We laugh at it, but that's exactly the argument that Paul is having to contend with here. And I don't think he's raising these arguments randomly. I think he's addressing things he's heard or that he suspects he's going to hear because of what he's heard in the past. This argument suggests then that God, when he inflicts his wrath against those in Israel who sin, that he's doing it unjustly. He's being unrighteous in doing so because he's hurt them for the things they did to make him look good. It's a weird argument, right? As crazy as it seems to us, this is an argument that comes from Jewish identity proponents. In other words, God can't put Jews in hell to suffer because it would make him look unrighteous to do so. And Paul just distances himself from this claim. At the end of verse 5, he says, look, I'm not trying to tell you I think this. This is what I've heard. It's a human, ungodly perspective. It just shows you that Paul felt that it was ridiculous too. And then he answers it. He says, if God could overlook the sin of Jews merely because they're Jewish, then how could he justly judge anything or anyone? Because he'd be a hypocrite. He'd be holding a sinning Gentile accountable while ignoring the sin of a Jew. And then he'd no longer be qualified to serve as humanity's fair and impartial judge because double standards are not fair. He would lose the right, in other words, to be the judge because if he's not just, then there is no judge. And then that leads to the fourth question, verse 7. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. 
This is a fourth question. This fourth question is a corollary to the third one. It gets actually progressively more ridiculous. And he's speaking here on a personal level. If the earlier argument was corporate, the Jewish people are helping God by letting him be seen as righteous and judging them. Well, this is now on a personal level. Speaking on a personal level, the questioner is asking, isn't the unrighteousness of a Jew actually to God's advantage in the long run? Uh, We'd be thinking that when we sin, we give God more opportunity to show us grace. And so shouldn't he be congratulating the sinful Jew rather than condemning that person when he gives them that opportunity? It's licentiousness turned into an excuse. Paul answers that question with a sarcastic question of his own. If someone was going to suggest this, then Paul asks, why shouldn't they live according to that motto at all times? Paul sums up his perspective simply by saying, why don't they just say, let us do evil that good may come? Now, he distances himself from that one, too, because if you play this out to its logical end, then no one should ever do anything good. If your goal is to glorify God, and creating sin gives opportunity for God to show mercy and grace, which makes him look better, and therefore more sin makes God better, well, then why do you ever do anything good? Because in that case, you'd be sinning. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? That's why he says, let us do evil that good may come. So if you really believe this kind of absurd logic, You'd always do the evil thing all the time. But self-evidently, no godly person sincerely believes this is true. And even those who are ungodly and try to use it as an excuse, they don't pursue it because if they did, they'd either be in prison or they'd be dead. They know themselves that it's not realistic. It's a game. And Paul leaves the argument unaddressed because I don't think he wants to dignify it. He just says their condemnation will be just when it comes. So as the questions get more ridiculous, his answers get more impatient. And that brings us to the fifth and final one. But this is where we get into some serious doctrine. The fifth and final question returns us to where Paul began in verse 9. I'm going to read 9 through 18 now. Verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So here's what Paul's asking in these questions. He says, so what do we conclude then concerning Jew versus Gentile? Or another way to ask it is, so what are we then to conclude about the Jew? What advantage do they have? Are they better than Gentiles? And Paul phrases it here in the first person. He says, are we better than they? He uses that first person pronoun because he was Jewish and because he was writing to a Jewish leadership. So what are we to make of all this? Are we better than our Gentile friends? When all is said and done, when we're all standing before God, when we're all facing eternal judgment, will a Jew be able to rest on their heritage to save them? Will that get them into heaven? And to that, Paul answers plainly, not at all. You're not better than a Gentile. Jews are not better on the question of righteousness. They may have certain advantages. They've received certain privileges, certain promises. But individually, no Jew stands in any better place than any Gentile. And to prove the point... Paul goes to Scripture again, and he quotes from two different psalms. He just mashes it together, Psalms 14 and 53. But what he chose to quote closes the door on any thought that you can be righteous from any way of your own. This is one of the key passages of the New Testament. In this passage, because of how it sits in its context, what Paul's addressing, in other words, how he's using it, It gives us a number of meaningful theological issues here, including original sin, total depravity, the universality of guilt of mankind before God. There's some very key theological principles in this passage. They're not only here, but they're presented here in such a nice, concise way. It's a very powerful place to see it. Let's begin first in verse 10, where Paul quotes the Word of God, testifying that there is none among humanity who are righteous, not even one. And that is a sweeping statement, and intentionally so. The Bible is saying that there is not a single human being descended from Adam who will stand before God without condemnation. Not one. None are righteous, that is to say, none are without sin. And to be sure we understand that he means none, he adds at the end, not one. 
So as soon as you were thinking of someone, he said, no. (laughs) Not that one either. It matters not who we are. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter how many sins you've committed, how much repentance you've expressed, or how many good deeds you've done. It doesn't matter your age. It does not matter whether you are an infant or whether you are an old man. It doesn't matter whether you are a genius or whether you are mentally incapacitated. None of those things change the fundamental fact. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, there is not a single person in humanity who is righteous done. That is from those who come from Adam. And the reason for this universality of guilt is that our unrighteousness is not the result of what we do. Our unrighteousness is present in us at birth. That's what we mean by original sin. Adam's fall in the garden changed his spiritual nature irreparably. And when he goes to reproduce with his wife, he creates new life in the same nature as his own. God ordained that life would be created in the same kind as that parent. And that wasn't just a physical definition of reproduction. It was all nature, all aspects. So what you are is what you make. Because Adam's spirit was fallen, the children he produced had fallen nature, and they became the fathers of the next generation, and on it went, down to you and I today. It is such that even David acknowledges this very principle in his own life in Psalm 51, verse 4, when he says, Against you, you only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Now the next thing he says... He's gotten in trouble. He's had to pay a price. He's saying, yep, you caught me. It's, it's true. I did it. You were blameless. You judged me. And now the next thing he wants to say is explain why it happened. What are the reasons you might think somebody in that situation might offer for why it happened? I was, I was having a bad day. I was off my meds. I was mad at my boss. Uh, you know, this happened. That happened. I couldn't help myself. It's just something in my environment. You know, I have this tick. I can't stop myself, right? <laughs> In other words, it's either my environment or it's me or something about my life. It's something I have to point to. Here's what David says. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So he blames his mother. But honestly, what he blames is original sin. And you know what? He's right. That doesn't excuse him. We know that. But I don't think that was his point either. He's simply acknowledging the fact that he had come into the world with what caused him to do that. It just was a part of his nature, and he didn't control it. So by nature, the children of Adam are unrighteous. As some have observed, we are called sinners not because we sin, but we sin because we are born sinners. This is the doctrine of original sin. The concept from Scripture that says all humanity is born with a spiritual defect. And Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 2, verse 1. He says, to the church, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and notice, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So he says, we came into the world in this spiritually dead state, I call it a spiritual defect. In that spiritually dead nature we had, we were effectively pledged to Satan. And we lived our life in the flesh under his command, even if we didn't realize it. And as a result, Paul says, we were not children of God, as we like to think ourselves before we became believers. We like to think everybody's a child of God, right? The world loves to throw that term around. The Bible says that's not true. You were a child of wrath. That is to say, you were a child deserving of that outcome. But by faith, you might become a child of God. He ends by saying, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, meaning all humanity. Who we are, by nature of how we came into this world, has then caused us to be unrighteous, and there is not one exception to that rule for all who have descended from Adam. I keep using that phrase, of course, because I am excluding one person when I say that, who is not descended from Adam, but was yet man, Christ. So we have original sin that causes none of us to be righteous, and now from there, Paul goes deeper, and he selected these verses very carefully to draw a very specific cause and effect conversation out. So the next series of spiritual consequences that come from being spiritually dead are profound. The first of these consequences is in the first half of Romans 3.11. Paul says, There is no human being who understands God. As a result of our spiritual deadness from birth, 
Mankind is incapable of understanding the truth about God. That is, to knowing Him truly. Spiritual truth lies outside the grasp of spiritually dead people. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, to the church again. He says, Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So Paul says, the believer, you and I, we've received the Spirit of God so that we can gain an ability to know the truth about God, to know the things that he says we were given freely by God, that is, by His grace. So what Paul is saying is, apart from the Spirit of God, you can't know those things. He gave us the Spirit so that we would know these things. And in turn, he says, when we know these things from the Spirit, we turn around and we speak these truths to others, not because we've been taught those things by other people, but because the Spirit of God did. So he works through human agency to transfer information. But that information doesn't bounce off your head because you have the Spirit of God catching it, so to speak, preparing you to receive it so that you can understand it. Take either of those elements out and you don't get it. If God isn't bringing you the information and if He is not receiving it for you, you can't do any of that on your own. You can't find Him on your own and you can't receive knowledge of God on your own. Paul says at the end of verse 14 in in 1 Corinthians 2, he said, A natural man, which is his term for an unbeliever, that is one who's born in the nature of Adam, a natural man cannot accept the truth of God. Now notice the terms he used there. He did not say a natural man does not or will not or generally does not. He says cannot. It's a spiritual barrier. And he says, when you try to bring someone like that, spiritual truth, he only or she only perceives it as foolishness. You ever tried to evangelize someone who does not have the Spirit of God working in their heart in the moment, which is often the case? Nothing you say makes any sense, even though it makes perfect sense to us, doesn't it? That's what Paul means when he quotes the psalmist to say, no one understands. Now remember, no one here still means no one. There's never been an exception to this rule. There's never been anyone smart enough that on their own, without the Spirit of God, they were able to open a Bible and understand the Word of God such that they could come to understand God. No one's ever done it. No one reasons themselves into believing the gospel. By human reason, the gospel always is nonsense. Think about it. The message you've been given that God says will save anyone who believes in it is a message that effectively communicates that a convicted criminal from a foreign country 2,000 years ago who died is your secret to getting into heaven. On its face, it's complete foolishness. And it's designed to be that way, according to what 1 Corinthians said, so that God could shame the wise things of the world with something foolish. The ability to understand that truth lies outside our grasp, and that spiritual blindness is a consequence of a spiritual birth defect that we receive from our father Adam. So what's the solution to that? Sounds like a catch-22. The thing that I need to save me, I can't receive until I've already got it. It takes a living spirit to understand spiritual truth from God, but we've been born with a dead spirit. Well, Paul's going to show you how to fix that later in the letter. For now, he's just fleshing out the consequences of that original sin. And the first consequence is, no one can understand God. The next consequence, in the second half of verse 11, there's no one who seeks for God. Now, Paul is not saying no one seeks for religion or a religious experience or just in general to be spiritual in some way. The Bible is saying no one seeks for the true living God. No one finds that path to God on their own. And, of course, that makes perfect sense when you remember that we've been born with this dead spirit and dead things don't seek for anything. As Paul said in Ephesians, we were dead in our sins seeking only to serve our flesh. So even those who pursue religion in some form are doing so, ironically, for fleshly reasons. Theologians call this particular principle total depravity, which means the deadness of a person's spirit precludes them from ever rising above their nature on their own. They do not know God. They do not understand God. They do not even seek for God, such that even if someone should share spiritual truth with that person, they would not understand it. It's the definition of being lost. You're not just lost. You're so lost, you can't find your way back even with help. You're not even asking for help. You're so lost, you don't even understand the word. 
That's the state of everybody who's born in the world. And our sin nature is so corrosive that it only serves to drive us further and further away from God. It's like a rock dropped in the sea. It only moves downward and always away from the light of the surface. And it continues to do that. Unless someone reaches down into the dark and grabs the rock, it's going to continue falling. And it can never raise itself. Because we are blind and deaf to God and spiritually unable to find Him, we are, Paul says, useless to Him. Together, Paul says in verse 12, that all humanity has turned together to becoming useless. Or the word in Greek could actually be translated corrupt, like a car that's resting in the back of your house. It's useless. God gains nothing from unsaved humanity. We don't thank Him. We don't honor Him. We don't praise Him. We don't serve Him. We're useless. We're corrupt. Notice again, the psalmist clarifies that there is not even one exception to this statement. As you hear some of this, and I've had this experience with other people when I've taught this, when people start to get the magnitude of what Paul's expressing in this part of chapter 3, at some point as you hear this, it's not unusual for the name of a good person you know to come to mind. Some civic or social leader, some heroic figure from history, maybe a dear family member. You start to wonder, certainly that person has done good things in life. They are a sinner, yes, but certainly you could say they're not useless, even though they didn't know the Lord. But the Bible testifies against that thinking, at least in a spiritual sense. Because although war heroes may do good acts, they don't do good. Not in the technical definition of the term. Social leaders may accomplish good works for the poor, but they don't do good. Because the Bible says that even our so-called good works amount to nothing to God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like the one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and all our iniquities like the wind take us away. Well, how can that be true? How can someone stand up here and tell you that your good-natured grandmother was not good? It's because we measure good in ways that are different than the way God measures good. That's fundamentally the problem. We see good from a selfish perspective. We can't help but do that because of our sin nature. So that is, if something pleases us, if it lets us feel better about ourselves or about someone else, well, then that seems good to us, and so we call it good. But the true and only measure of good belongs to who? The one and only who is good, according to Jesus, right? There is no one good but God alone. And so if God is alone good, then by definition, the meaning of the word must be a description of Him. And therefore, anyone who is operating in a dead, sinful spirit is incapable of reaching that level even on their best days, even in the things they do that we prefer. And even if we should, by luck, accomplish a decent thing from once in a while, it's spoiled because it comes out of a selfish, sinful heart. And that's the problem with humanity, that even on our best days, we are not even close. And Paul finishes this section, verses 13 through 18, with a summary of the sinful behaviors that exemplify fallen humanity. I'm just going to summarize it quickly. He says, Our mouths are like open graves, in that the things that come out are like death itself. Uh, We speak in deceiving ways, hurtful ways. In fact, it occurred to me as I was studying this, if you took a careful inventory of the sins committed by just your tongue, you would run out of paper before you could write it all down. And that's before you got to anything else you do. There's no better measure of the unrighteousness of humanity and the universal nature of our condition than the common condition of our tongue. But of course, we have a lot more than that. Our feet, he says, are quick to shed blood. And that is, they beat a path of destruction ahead of ourselves for wherever we're going to go into destruction. And when you look at this list sort of in summary... It it occurred to me that it's an allusion, I think, to the fall itself, to what caused us all to have this. That is, the sin of the fall began with a sin that was a lie, with a tongue told by Satan in the garden. It led to the feet of Adam and woman leaving the garden. It led to Cain shedding Abel's blood. It led to Cain walking a path of destruction away from his family and the rest of humanity with him. So eventually you have a world filled with misery where no one's ever seen or known true peace, Paul says. So when you hear people asking the question that you get a lot, like, why do... Bad things happen. Why is there suffering in the world and so on? The answer is in verse 18. No one born of Adam and living in the deadness of the Spirit fears God. And if you do not fear God, then you have no reason to restrain your sin nature. So before moving ahead in any of the analysis, we need to ask a question here. How do you reach the Jew who relies on their family heritage to save themselves, who has not grasped the seriousness of their sin problem? Well, I've tried to give an example in all four of these cases of what you can do in Scripture to bring to someone's mind the flaw in their thinking. And here's where I would take you for this one. In the Gospels, in Luke chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus, it says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. 
And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give him back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The point in this passage for someone who is depending on their Jewish identity for salvation is that you see in this example another man who is doing the same, at least initially, surrounded by others of the same thinking. Zacchaeus, it's a Jewish name. We know this is a Jewish man. But he's a man with significant sin, it would seem. And for that reason, Jesus declared that his response to Jesus had now brought the man to salvation. Now, of course, we know the Lord's not saying his works brought him there. He's saying, this man's response to me is evidence of his faith in me. And that faith has saved me, or saved him. But you notice the Lord declared something there that's very important. To the one who trusts in their Jewishness, direct them to this one word. The Lord declared that today this man became a son of Abraham. What you'd be showing a person is, this is the Lord speaking to a Jewish man who's well beyond the age of infancy. And yet, he's telling this man that only now on this day can he claim sonship. Only now, by this point, can he claim to be a son of Abraham. Where before, I'm sure any Jew would have said that they were a son of Abraham by birth. And furthermore, he says, I came to save and to seek those who are lost, men like this guy. That is to say, if this Jew could be lost while still being a Jew, clearly Jews do not have an inside track to heaven. There's something else that's required. Furthermore, they cannot rely on their connection to Abraham. Still, making this claim depends on that person being able to submit to the authority of Scripture. I can hear you already saying this in your heads. Well, if I brought this to a Jew, they would look at it and say, oh, it's the New Testament. This can't be true. Well, friends, you're not going to get around that problem because that's not a problem to be gotten around. That is the means of salvation. If the Word of God is not sufficient, you don't have anything better anyway. Faith is ultimately a matter for the Lord to decide. He may use His Word, and we hope for His grace, but you can't work without it, and so... There's no reason to avoid the fact that you're talking about a New Testament truth. Ultimately, that's what they have to believe in, the story of Christ. So Paul quotes these two Psalms, as we just finished them, as a capstone argument against all four of these lies, paganism, moralism, nomianism, and now Judaism, because every possible way that men have invented or imagined for how they think they can get to heaven is shown to be corrupt against that truth. They don't work. Self-evidently, they can't work because of our nature, and in the day of judgment, it will be seen that they haven't worked. Moreover, if no one then is righteous, this starts to raise a more frightening and fundamental question. How does anyone get to heaven? How does anyone survive the judgment moment with God? Well, Paul addresses that next, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul says, God sent the law into the world principally for the purpose of educating mankind on the standard for heaven. It's not supposed to be a recipe for how you merit heaven. In fact, Paul says that whatever the law says, it's saying what it says to those who are to be judged by it so that we would be accountable to God. Let me give you a more literal translation of verse 19 so that you can see what he's saying. This comes out of the Young's literal version. Verse 19, And we have known that as many things as the law says, to those in the law it speaks, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may come under judgment to God. So what the Bible is saying is this, the ultimate effect of God giving His law to Israel and to us was not redemption, but condemnation. That's the inevitable conclusion, logically speaking, because if every human being is born with sin, that means we've already lost our race to heaven before we ever knew there was a race to run. So if that's true, what can be the purpose of God giving us the rules to the race after the fact? That's what the law is. The law is, hey, if you want to run your own race and get into heaven on your own merits, here's what you've got to do. Can you meet this standard? By the time we get it, we've already lost the race. 
So what purpose was there in giving it to us? It can't be to give us a means to get there. It's too late in any case. Never mind the fact that we can't do it. So that raises the question, its only purpose at that point must be to just make us feel bad. (laughs) You know, you ever had that argument with your spouse, right? I can't fix this, honey. Why are you telling me I did it wrong? I can't do anything about it now. I'm just feeling bad about it. Well, sometimes that's enough reason right there to tell somebody. To shut up any disagreement, as Paul says. That mouths would be closed to the debate about whether you might get there or not on your own merits. The law stands as witness against us to remind us of the problems we've already had. How ironic that someone would then try to follow those rules later, already having been disqualified by them. Paul says in verse 20 that because of mankind's dilemma, no one will be successful in achieving a declaration of righteousness before God. You can't do it by trusting in created things. You can't do it by trusting in yourself. You can't do it by trusting in laws, even the law of God. And you can't do it by just trusting in your identity. The law of God reminds you that you were condemned long before you even started caring about those things. So once again, you have to ask the question, how does anyone get to heaven? May I suggest that an effective evangelistic technique ought to include at least some aspect of that truth in what you say? You have to find some right way to inform someone that they are a sinner and that the standard for heaven is perfection, and they don't meet it. That has to be somewhere in there, because as the saying goes, if you're trying to sell somebody something, they've got to have a need for it first. And you're trying to explain the need when you talk about sin. You are selling them, effectively, the answer to the great spiritual dilemma of mankind. You're offering the world, when you give them the gospel, the way a sinful person who's already lost the battle can still meet the standard required by heaven. And most people, at least most I meet, will acknowledge they're not perfect. That's a phrase we love to throw around. Well, nobody's perfect. Well, use it. Are you perfect? Well, nobody's perfect. Okay, hold that thought. (laughs) Because our sin is so self-evident, even if we're reluctant to acknowledge it at times, no one's really debating that point very often. Now, the question is, what's the meaning of it? And since sin, by definition, is imperfection, and perfection is the requirement, according to what he describes of himself in his word, that if we enter God's judgment moment in our present condition, we have no expectation except judgment. So how does someone become good enough to get into heaven? How do we get declared righteous? That leads to the turning point in Paul's letter, the last verses of the night. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul gave us that, and then he quickly moved into a discussion of unrighteousness, basically, of all the lies that people tell in place of the truth. Now that he's dealt with them, he's come back to this topic, the gospel message, the thing that has the power of God to save everyone who believes. What is the power? How does it solve our dilemma? How does it solve these problems you just told me I have? How does it work? What's the effectual work of the gospel? Why does believing save me? I still have sin. How come that's good enough? What's the mechanism God is using? And that's what we're going to learn in the letter as we go forward. And he summarizes this power to save in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. In 21, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. From this verse 21 all the way to the end of chapter 3, the block of text there that finishes the chapter, is Paul's most thorough summary of the gospel in the Bible. So if you ever want to bookmark in your Bible, where do I go to just explain the gospel in its fullness? This is the most technical and thorough description. But in that way, it's also a bit hard to get through. The easiest one is actually 1 Corinthians 15. But Paul begins by saying, apart from the law. He means that what I'm about to tell you has nothing to do with the law. Period. Following a law, or any kind of law, is not going to get you the righteousness you need for heaven. So let's stop talking about law for a minute. You remember we were the rock sinking to the bottom of the ocean a little while ago? Paul says your sin began at birth. You can't take law after the fact and fix that problem. The passing grade is 100%. You've already failed. So what he's saying is the solution has to be apart from law. It has to come from some completely different direction if it's going to work. And he says, well, what you need is the righteousness of God. It's an unavoidable conclusion. If the only person who has enough righteousness to merit heaven is God himself, because he's the only one who's good, and everyone else is born with sin, so by definition we all started with a deficit before we even knew it, well then, there's no source of righteousness that can equal God's own righteousness except his. 
there's two conclusions you draw from this before you know better. You either need to become God, or you need to gain God's righteousness. You need to gain what God has in his own character. Well, let me just say up front, the gospel is not a story on how you can become God. The Mormons have that story. This is a story about how you can obtain God's righteousness. So the answer begins with, you don't seek to become righteous by your own works or knowledge or identity or some other means. You, you skip that step and you just gain God's righteousness for your own sake. Paul says this righteousness of God has been manifested to us. The verb manifest means to be revealed. Something's been made known. His righteousness has been made known to us. The message of the gospel is an explanation for how you obtain his righteousness. The Greek verb tense is in the middle voice there. It's a voice we don't have in English. But it means that the revelation came to us by God. He revealed his message about himself to us. That's basically what the middle voice says. There was no intermediary. We didn't go figure it out on our own. Remember, no one seeks God. No one understands. God had to reveal it. And even if we had stumbled upon it, we still couldn't have understood it. Jesus refers to that same kind of situation, by the way, as throwing pearls before swine from Matthew. That's his way of saying, if you take something that someone's not capable of understanding and give it to them, they don't know what to do with it. What had to happen instead was God had to make the truth known to us. That means he had to seek us out. He had to give us the means to understand his revelation. Then he had to deliver it to us. Otherwise, we would have rejected it. So how did he do this? How did he make it known to us? Well, we're only starting a beginning of it here in what we read so far in verse 21 when he says it's witnessed by the law and by the prophets. We'll come back at this point and look at how the righteousness of God has been revealed to us. It starts there and it goes deeper. We'll come back next week and look at that. Dear Father, uh, help us, Father, with someone we may know who is trusting in their identity, whether Jewish or some other identity, who might be assuming, Father, that by who they know or how they've been raised or the family they came out of, that that's enough, that you'll give them what they expect just because of that. They were born Catholic, or they were born Baptist, or they were born Jewish, as they think. And these things seem to be all they need. And Father, we ask that in that relationship we have, we might be useful to you to speak truth to them in a way that causes them to know that what they've been trusting in will fail them. But there is hope. And that we could explain to them properly the righteousness of God so that they would seek after it. And that you would use us for that purpose. Father, that would be a wonderful thing for us, and we'd enjoy Seeing that happen, Father, would be a blessing. Maybe that's uh, something you'd give us, Father. We pray for that. And, Lord, bring us back in weeks to come, as always. We'd love to continue this study, for there's so much more to learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.